I see the Medicata as sort of a radical rejection of the notion that I can take this Peru study and say something about how far close it would be to another site without actually doing the experiment in another site. Welcome back to Scope Conditions. From the University of British Columbia, I'm Alan Jacobs. And I'm Yang Yang Zhou. Today's episode is part two of our conversation about Medicatas with Dr. Tara Slough, Assistant Professor of Politics at NYU, and Dr. Graham Blair, Assistant Professor of Political Science at UCLA. In part one, we learned what a Medicata is, how it's typically organized, and what the benefits are of having coordinated teams experimentally test the same or very similar interventions across multiple contexts. We also talked about each of the two EGAP Medicatas that Tara and Graham co-led, the first on natural resource governance and the second on community policing. In today's episode, we talk with Tara and Graham about deeper conceptual issues, practical constraints, and equity considerations around Medicatas. It's fairly simple to interpret the results if we find the same effect across study sites. But what do we conclude if we see different treatment effects across the sites? We also ask how far Medicatas can get us toward generalizability. It's one thing to compare results across six test sites, but can we extrapolate to other contexts outside of the Medicata? And while Medicatas are a powerful tool, we also learn from Tara and Graham about their challenges and limitations. What was it like coordinating across six research teams, all with their own local constraints, timelines, and publication incentives? What are the equity concerns that come up when so many resources are allocated to a single question? And we talk about the professional considerations that scholars, particularly junior scholars, should keep in mind when signing up to participate in a Medicata. We hope you enjoy this conversation. To stay informed about future episodes, follow us on Twitter at Scope Conditions and check out our website, scopeconditionspodcast.com, where you can also find references to all the academic works we discuss. And if you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Now, here's part two of our conversation with Tara Slough and Graham Blair. As a reminder, we left off in part one discussing how to pool estimates across study sites to get an average treatment effect. This is where we pick up the conversation. So I recognize in, in both your Medicatas, you are basically seeing a lot of similar effects across the six sites. For example, with community policing, Graham, you just said like it didn't work in any of the six sites. What would have happened if, hypothetically, you found, for example, in the democratic countries, it worked really well and you have these very strong, positive estimates, but in the autocratic ones, nothing happened or there was even some backlash? Would you still just be averaging across them or would there be some internal debate saying, hey, there's some really clear pattern here that's separated by regime type, for example? I think that there would be a concern over interpretation of the results, but I, I don't think we would have a debate if the effects varied by context over the pooling. And I think that we've had that debate in this study, even though all of our effects are are null, and whether we really can interpret the six effects that we have as something that's meaningfully comparable. 
I guess I would say like if you saw these clear patterns in the treatment effects, I think that it would be certainly be something worth discussion or potentially even averaging within democratic versus autocratic countries. But ultimately, I think we have to understand that with six studies, we're making a very small end comparison, even though we're making this comparison of causal effects. And often heterogeneous treatment effects have sort of a similar flavor. And so I don't think it's something that's outside of common practice, but I think it is something worth thinking about. We planned for this. So we wrote a a short pre-analysis plan that tried to imagine several different scenarios and what we would interpret in those different scenarios. And so we wrote down what framework we would have if we found that there were null effects, if we found that they're all the same effects, all positive or all negative, and what would happen if there were mixed findings. And that gave us a framework for thinking about if we found that there were mixed findings according to pre-specified dimensions about pre-existing levels of trust, for example, then that would lead us down one path of interpretation. We don't have to take the poolings quite so seriously. In all these metacadas, there are two things being presented. There are pooled analyses, and there are also the country-level estimates. And both of those are useful for different purposes. So I think that if you're a policymaker in a new country or a policymaker in one of the countries that we worked in, you might take those country-level estimates and, and usefully use them. So you might try to find the estimate that you think that your context is closest to, or create a weighted average in your mind of, or formally, between those that you think represents your context. And so I think that those two different ways of, of interpreting these evidence, and we don't need to only focus on the pooled estimates themselves. So we're talking about two ways in which heterogeneity across contexts, like if the treatment effects are different across contexts, create complications. One is potentially that kind of heterogeneity violates the assumptions required to do the pooling, to present this pooled estimate. But the other thing that happens if we see heterogeneity in treatment effects across sites is that I think a natural question to ask is why, right? As comparativists, we often think about processes and effects being moderated by context. And Graham, earlier you alluded to the limits of metacadas, of the metacada approach, at least with six or seven study sites, in helping us get at why we might be seeing any difference in treatment effects that we that we see. Could you elaborate on that and how you how you think about what we can and can't say if we do see heterogeneity? I think we should treat the evidence of heterogeneity across the six or seven estimates with extreme caution because there's a small number of estimates and lots of different things that are varying, just like we would treat a small n analysis of any data set with extreme caution. But there's a lot of other data that comes out of these experiments that is collecting effects on a wide variety of different outcomes that is looking for potential treatment effect heterogeneity, and that is conducting the experiment in a range of different settings within each context. And so I don't think we need to be so focused on what can we learn from the variation across these seven estimates, but what can we learn from this larger pattern of results that could help inform theory. And so I think that if we found a difference that seemed quite striking between effects among democracies and effects among non-democracies, then we might want to look to those other sources of evidence. So what are the other implications of this theory that might imply that this works very well in places that are strongholds of an autocratic leader versus opposition areas or variation across outcomes for people that are Democrats versus people that aren't Democrats. So I think it's that broader pattern of results that we should be using rather than focusing on just those six numbers. One pattern that we were imagining 
could pop out in our community policing study is that there might have been very different effects among places that were high-capacity police agencies versus places that were lower-capacity police agencies. So in a place like Liberia, where officers simply have very few resources for undertaking investigations of concerns or crimes that citizens report, that might just not lead to the feedback loop that we expected. Whereas in a place like Colombia or Brazil, where where police are much better resourced and have access to investigatory resources, the theory of change might be more operative. I think that we wouldn't have wanted to lean too much into the interpretation just from those differences in significance between the six cases. And that's what we pre-specified, that we're not going to do that. But we might have looked to variation in places that are wealthier and less wealthy within those cases where there's a lot more there's a lot more variation a lot larger number of cases than than just the number of countries if i can jump in on that when we think about heterogeneity within the sites of a Madagascar i think one thing that we always need to keep in mind particularly when we find limited amounts thereof is the process of selection into the metaketa and we might think about an interesting comparison to that and other types of small end research uh, perhaps if you were to think about like six case studies for example as opposed to six field experiments and i think that there's two pieces that shape selection into this the first is that i think often researchers doing these think that the intervention could have some positive effect in the place that they're studying it So if I thought that starting community police or having anti-riot police do community policing would lead to terrible outcomes, and I may have good reasons to believe that in community policing, I probably wouldn't run that study, both for ethical reasons, or if I thought that community policing would have no effect, like I had a strong prior that there was going to be no effect of this, it's not clear that I would spend four years of my research time doing this. And so to the extent that people select into these projects because they believe there could be either at worst no effect or at best some positive effect, I think limits the amount uh, that we could interpret just of how much heterogeneity there could be in the world and across cases. Whereas if I want to study community policing or natural resource governance using case studies, I can, with fewer reservations, study places where it went terribly wrong without me being the one that helps to make things go wrong. And so in some sense, if we just compare sort of an N of six study, I think we would expect the Medicaid to have less variation than we may if we do any sort of careful selection of cases. And I think just in terms of interpreting heterogeneity, that's something that's important to keep in mind. So we've been thinking a lot about heterogeneity within the six or seven sites in a Medicaid, but Tara, you've got us thinking more about just external validity of how we can think about any effect outside of the cases that we've studied. You've recently written a paper with Scott Tyson on external validity and meta-studies, And in this paper, you formally identify the conditions under which results can be meaningfully aggregated across studies. How do you think about the concept of external validity? And how do you see current Medicata practices as getting at it? So I'm excited to talk a little bit about this new paper with Scott that ties together some of my reflections from actually doing a meta-analysis. And we went into this and we thought, you know, external validity is like a critical component of these metacatas. In some sense, it was the goal that animated this whole drive to do these multi-site studies. And certainly as like an experimentalist, it's something that you'll often hear in seminar talks or in conferences when somebody says, but are these effects externally valid? And as we work through this, 
we realize that there's not commonly held definition of external validity. There's a lot that's been written, but first of all, it's not formalized in most settings. And second, we see two main approaches in the literature. And so the first and we think more dominant approach in the literature is this inductive idea of external validity. So external validity exists as a property of a study. And I want to know whether my study's estimate is close or far uh, from the estimate that I would get doing the study in another place. And so, for example, is my estimate of the effect of community monitoring on deforestation in Peru similar to the effect that I would see on community monitoring on deforestation in Liberia, for example. And so a lot of those approaches have estimation-based solutions. We could reweight the estimate from Peru according to population covariates to try to make it look more like Liberia. We could try to measure the contextual factors in it and try to reweight out the estimates in another way. And also, I think the more common recent one is looking at the Peru site as some sample estimate, and we care about the population estimate from which it's drawn. And so those are all sort of estimation-based solutions. I see the Matacata as sort of a radical re rejection of that notion. It's a rejection of the notion that I can take this Peru study and say something about how far close it would be to another site without actually doing the experiment in another site. And so if I believe this inductive concept, why would I spend my money doing two worst powered studies in different places as opposed to just putting as much money as I could into Peru and try to make that the strongest possible study and then just do my estimation to extrapolate from that. So we see the Medicata approach to being much more consistent with a more deductive idea that there is some sort of relationship mechanisms that produce effects that are at least similar within some set of conditions or settings, which we refer to as the scope conditions to get to back to the podcast name, so that there's something, some mechanism that's happening that's producing effects within this set. And what we're trying to do is measure that. So external validity is characterizing what would happen um, under similar experimental conditions. And if we produce the same effect under the same experimental conditions in different settings, then we say it's externally valid. And it strikes me that the Medicata approach is linked much more closely to that notion of external validity. So I think when thinking about the difference between this inductive approach and the deductive approach that I think Medicatas have at least implicitly embraced. So in the inductive approach, a lot of questions about external validity can be solved using estimators and people in political science are working hard to introduce or adapt some estimators from other fields that help us say, if my treatment effect in Peru was this, then my best guess at the treatment effect in another place, given these conditions would be uh, Y. Right. Uh, in the Matacata approach, our idea is that by saying that we want to pool these estimates, there has to be something comparable in the process that's going on, that community monitoring works through a set of mechanisms that are common across places, such that when we increase the level of community monitoring, then we would expect to observe similar effects in these places. And that's the rationale that I get by pooling the estimates that I get across the sites to give you a meta estimate that has any sort of meaning. Are there ways of designing meta that might 
better allow researchers to justify those assumptions that there's some common process going on across the study sites? In our paper, we think about what aspects of research design we would need to adjust to make sure that we're evaluating these treatment effects, which we believe will manifest in similar ways under similar conditions if a phenomenon is externally valid. And so the idea then is that we need to think about how do we get to those similar conditions under which we're evaluating uh, the effects of a treatment on an outcome. And for us, we have a much broader and perhaps more stringent definition of harmonization than is currently adopted by the Medicas. So one of the things that Graham and I have talked about is this challenges in harmonizing treatment that we went through with these teams and some issues that came up along the way, some limits, both practical, budgetary, and otherwise with respect to how well treatments could be harmonized. So in the paper with Scott, we argue and show that this isn't enough to get to the harmonization we would need. And so our notion of harmonization is of the contrast between our treatment and our control. Because ultimately, a treatment effect is comparing outcomes under treatment to control. So we're looking at a difference. And one of the problems is if we don't try to measure control, there's no expectation that even if we held that treatment fixed, even if we were way better at harmonizing than we were, that those would produce a similar effect. Because, for example, Graham talked about our study in Columbia of policing, right? There was already frequent beat patrols there. And so in some sense, that's a different baseline than in some of the other places where that wasn't. And so ultimately, this harmonization of treatment doesn't do very much for the harmonization of that difference between treatment and control. And when we have our data, the way that treatment shows up is our treatment indicator is a one versus a zero. And so within psych, that makes a lot of sense. It's easy to estimate. It's easier to take a difference in means or run regressions. But that normalization does not generalize across sites. And so that makes it really hard when we haven't harmonized or at least measured these differences in treatments to even detect if a mechanism is externally valid when it is. The other aspect of harmonization we've touched a little bit on is measurement harmonization. And in some sense, this is perhaps easier, but Graham and I have had somewhat different approaches to how to harmonize survey questions. And I think that we don't know which approach is better or if there are notable differences. Our approach in Medicata 3 was to harmonize on some concept and tell people to uh, uh, create survey questions that best measured that specific concept in their setting. And so we did get some variation in the survey questions. And I think Graham was much more disciplined with the teams and he can talk some more about it and perhaps his frustrations with my team in terms of keeping the survey questions identical up to issues of translation. And I think in terms of measurement harmonization, it's a more obvious point, but it's something that we still need to learn a lot more about to get us towards that harmonization. And so tying this back together, Scott, in my argument in our paper, is simply that to even detect an externally valid mechanism, we need to either be evaluating it under similar conditions as close as possible, which we haven't done yet, if we want to use the estimators we're estimating. If we want to depart from those and do a different type of structural estimator, we would need to know a lot more about what the differences in the different treatment and control conditions are across sites and also have some better expectations for how treatment effects should vary within those and model that accordingly. That's fascinating. Graham, did you want to add anything here? 
Sure. On the measurement harmonization, I think this is something that where there's not a lot of clear guidance because there's several steps from the original concept all the way to the measurement. One is like, let's all agree on the concept and then let's develop a common way to measure that. And then in every one of these studies, then there's a procedure to go from that to the actual question that's asked in a survey. And so I think the difference in, in these two approaches is, is how much movement is there in that last step. And I think I've learned a lot about that process from doing this and and have just seen that it's really hard to do either one and that if you're trying to keep the concept similar you're just in a bad position because you're not on the ground in any of those contexts and so you're not in a position to adjudicate the differences in how you're measuring that concept and if you're doing what we did in the community policing round which is to try to either have exactly the same language up to translation or to really understand what the difference was you're also in a bad position because you're trying to enforce coordination without having the ground truth about how far off those concepts are and so i think one of the lessons that i've learned from this is that there needs to be more sinews between the field teams and the decisions that are going on with respect to coordinating both measurements and treatments, because I think the same kinds of issues happen with treatments. And ultimately, it shouldn't be a set of people that aren't doing the field research that are making a lot of these decisions, because it's kind of impossible to do that. I think one issue where we can think about this harmonization of question up to translation versus concept became clear is for an outcome like knowledge. And so in the policing metacata, we ask factual questions about beliefs about police responsibilities and police procedures and the outcomes of interactions with police. And one of the things that came to light is that on various of the outcomes in pretesting, there were places uh, in which we had large amounts of variation on specific questions and other places where there was no variation. So there was one question, and I'm certainly misphrasing this, but it was sort of, if you found a dead body in the street and you called the police, would the police arrest you? And in some contexts, there was high levels of variation. People were really split on this. In, in Medellin, at least in our piloting, effectively everyone answered no and thought it was sort of a silly question. And so then the question is, is that question uh, adequately able to measure knowledge in Medellin, where we know that there is substantial variation in knowledge about police procedure as it is in one of the places in which there's high amounts of variation. And if that's the case, would it have been better to use site-specific questions about knowledge of police? And I think that this is an open question that we don't necessarily know the answer to. I think Graham articulated really well what the limitations to each approach are. And I think this is a place for future multi-site studies. I would want to see some innovation that I could learn from. I would just add that our main concern was we already have this set of differences in the treatments and in the kinds of contexts that we're seeing here. And so the trade-off that we felt was just we're introducing additional variation in terms of the measurement that we don't fully understand. And so when we come out with six different studies that have six different results, are we going to be able to confidently say it's not due to differences in measurement? I don't think either of these approaches is necessarily right or wrong, as Tara is saying, but that's the kind of concern that we were trying to address. So this has been a fascinating discussion so far on just the challenges of harmonizing across research design, the treatments, thinking about estimation, all the parts that you can 
ostensibly control. I'm curious now to hear just what are some of the challenges you guys faced on the implementation side on communities who agreed to be in the treatment, actually carrying out the treatment of even research teams actually being able to carry out what they'd said to carry out, harmonizing the way that you want to, all of the coordination, the sort of bumps in the road, those types of challenges. We were curious to hear about them. We're obviously working with six different police agencies and six different teams of researchers, all with different timelines and different constraints from from the police, but also from government partners. And so there were just an innumerable number of changes to the plans. And so I'll just kind of walk you through what happened in the Pakistan study. Our partner in the Pakistan study was a district police officer, and he was really excited about this. It was probably one of the people that really caused this whole study to happen because he was involved in the conversations with partners in Colombia and Uganda also, was really interested in whether community policing was something that could work in the district that he was working in and wanted to partner up to experiment about it. After the experiment began, he was just a couple of months into the planning for the baseline study transferred to another district. And so all of a sudden, all of the plans that had been proposed to EGAP for where we're going to work, how outcome measurement was going to take place, had to be scrapped because he had moved to a new district. He was our partner. And so a, a whole new study was designed in the new district that he moved. About a month after that, the Inspector General of Police was transferred And that created a whole other set of concerns because he was another person whose buy-in had already been secured, who's really on board with this. And then there were four more transfers of these two officials that we were working with. And the study at each point was redesigned and in two or three of those cases, basically completely redesigned. And so the study that you now see is the last iteration of that. And so I think that just reflects one of the ways that we interpret some of the results that we find is that in all of these cases, and, and especially in Pakistan, and Uganda and the Philippines, there's a really high rate of turnover of officials. And that just really undermined our ability to implement the originally planned community policing practices. We don't see that as a downside of our design, but rather a virtue that this is picking up a very real fact of the implementation gap in policymaking, which is that there are lots of plans, and then those plans are undermined by the realities of a bureaucracy. I would add that even in an easier setting, when we're not working with a state institution is directly. There are very small practical challenges that we may overlook when we run our own studies that add up. So one example to this is that we wanted to make sure that the studies in the natural resource Medicata was in the field for a year and all the sites are approximately a year. So we were measuring end line approximately a year after the start of the intervention. And there were various challenges in getting uh, the grant money to where it needed to be in time. So I remember with Brazil in particular, the team has a lot of local contextual knowledge, which is great. And when the money finally got where it needed to be, it came up against the World Cup. And they did not want to be running introductory uh, training meetings for communities during the World Cup because that would be a challenge to 
uh, uptake. And yet we budgeted a year out for when are we going to need to do end line and are we going to need to be able to complete this with the grant? And I think if they had been just running their own study in Brazil, the deadlines may have been slightly more flexible or they may have been able to say, you know, a 10 month study is enough. And so we don't need to worry about this. But instead, this type of coordination challenge emerged. And this was just one example. And so the teams were in general great sports and very responsive to feedback and the concerns of the broader project. But ultimately, with six different teams and six very different contexts, it's much harder to get things to happen in the way that they need to happen, given these additional demands on the project. I just can't even imagine how stressful (laughs) this must have been for both of you. And yet you, you're both still working on metaketas or you're both still working on experiments like this. Obviously this experience hasn't broken you. So it's very inspirational. Turning to the publication of the results, um, part of the EGAP metaketa principles is integrated publication. Tara, could you lay out for us what integrated publication means and why, under the EGAP principles, that's important? And we'd also be interested in hearing what it's like trying to get a Medicata published, particularly since it represents such a massive body of evidence with all these different empirical components, not to mention the fact that in political science, we don't often publish in such large teams. And I'd be curious about whether publication or or just the write-up of results is tricky in terms of getting such a large team to agree on a single set of interpretations in the manuscript. I think that one of the virtues of integrated publications, the idea that we're putting our studies together to form the greater uh, piece of work than the studies alone or even just the meta-analysis article, which presents a large amount of evidence, but without a lot of the contextual specificity of the individual articles, is that in order for us to interpret the results, we want to not just see what works. And it may be easiest place studies where we find these persuasive, statistically significant treatment effects. And so by integrated publication, I think we have both the virtues of reducing some of the biases that go into what gets published. And also we have a broader range covering the context of individual studies along with the integrated results. So the broad meta-analysis results and then a bit more depth on the individual studies. And so I think so far there've been two approaches to doing this. So Medicata 1 and 4, and I believe 2, have written a meta-analysis article and then also an edited volume that includes chapters from each site and a lot of more detail. Graham can talk about all of the work that went into the additional chapters there. Medicata 3, in contrast, the authors on all the teams were very adamant that they preferred and wanted to do a special issue, in part because we thought this was speaking perhaps more than the others, though though perhaps not the community policing one, to multiple disciplines. And we thought that we would have a more interdisciplinary audience with a special issue than potentially with an edited volume. And so we went about writing a proposal for a special issue and working through those processes to see if this was viable. And we eventually were invited on the basis of review of this uh, special issue proposal to submit these articles to PNAS. And then we had very patient editors that helped shepherd things through and helped improve the manuscripts in the course of 
that process. And so that was sort of the process that we took. And we think that the ultimate result is nice that you can see articles on each of the studies alongside the meta-analysis article and an introductory article that has some really interesting reflections on these concepts of harmonization from the editors, Arun Agrawal and Paul Ferraro, and then two commentary pieces on the set of articles. We decided to go with an, an article in a general science publication, given that there were multiple people from multiple disciplines, and also to write up a book that would enable us to publish all the findings together. One of the challenges that we faced was that book publishers haven't really caught up to this model of doing research, and we're kind of perplexed when we proposed to them that we would publish a book that had 25 authors on it, and ended up, despite six rounds of going back and forth to try to convince them about this new model of doing social science, that they didn't want to do that. So it's published as an edited volume with 20-something contributors rather than as a, a jointly authored volume, which we thought better reflected the the joint enterprise that, that we were undertaking. And to your question of how it is to get people to agree on a common interpretation, I think it was a really productive and and positive experience in many ways because people came into interpretation of the results from really different perspectives from local knowledge of of kind of how this intervention worked in their context and we had a number of really fruitful conversations that substantively changed how we interpreted the results and so we have this kind of discussion section in, in the paper that focuses on three challenges to implementation which are that there's rapid a rotation of officers, that there's mixed buy-in from, from police commanders, and that finally that there are capacity constraints that interrupted the ability of the police agencies to implement the community policing as they had planned. Those came out of our discussions about how to understand these results, where we asked teams to reflect on both the overall results and the results from their context and how they saw them, both from the interpretation guide that we originally wrote and after seeing and working with these police agencies. So it was a long process, but I, but I think ultimately a really fruitful one. How much work did the pre-analysis plan do in kind of harmonizing interpretations on the back end? I was surprised by how much room for just interpretation there was left. I think it really helped in disciplining our decisions about how to analyze and present the data and also gave us a really clear statement that we had all um, signed on to, even if we didn't all agree exactly in terms of what theory was driving these results from an ex-ante perspective. That was really helpful in not having kind of debates about what we thought beforehand versus what we thought afterward. But I was pretty surprised by how much room there still was for interpreting what happened, given maybe especially that we had these null results. I think that given that we didn't have null results, there was perhaps less debate in our metacata um, than there would have been had we found no effect on average, which is probably a weird perceptual bias of social scientists more generally that that was not the case. But I do think one thing that was helpful is our pre-analysis plan, at least our pre-registered ideas of the mechanisms more or less as a theory of change. And so we had pre-registered this theory of change. And I do think that that was helpful given that of our main hypotheses, we were able to reject the null hypothesis in the meta study for three of them. 
them in the expected direction. Yet we didn't find evidence more broadly consistent with that theory of change. And one piece of the paper is that we don't try to overinterpret the mechanisms. We don't try to say like, this is clearly the mechanism across all the sites. We were a little bit freer to say, these are the big question marks we have. Here are the ways that we've used data to think about them a little bit, but these remain question marks. And I think the pre-analysis plan, having that down was helpful in not being tempted to overinterpret what we were finding and what it meant about the underlying phenomenon or mechanisms. Now in the conversation, I think we just want to take a step back, think about the implications and the final reflections about all your work with Medicaidas. To the extent that we haven't already discussed this, do you see any other shortcomings to the current Medicaid model? In what directions would you like to see the model move in the future? Or put differently, if you could do something over or give a piece of advice to yourself as you were just starting out your Medicaida, what would you tell yourself? One of the frustrations for me in the Medicata was the ambiguous relationship between the steering committee, the people coordinating the joint aspect or the meta aspect, and the individual teams. And this is not the fault of anyone on the steering committee or the individual teams. I think when this structure came about in Medicata 1, there was some ambiguity to the degree of hierarchy versus non-hierarchy between these things. And I think that that not having a slightly more centralized leadership, huge benefits in terms of including more people and as unequally distributed as resources are in the discipline, making it worse than it would be otherwise. On the other hand, I think that some decisions could be perhaps more coherently made if they were tasked to a smaller set of people with some more ability to oversee what was happening in the individual sites. And so I think that there's a trade-off there. As someone on the steering committee, I wanted the additional centralization, but that's easy to say after the fact. And had that been the case, I wouldn't have been on the Medicata at all in the first place because I entered from one of the teams. I think that in terms of studying uh, theoretical mechanisms or measuring the effect of mechanisms, building that into the design a more central way as opposed to this crowdsourced intervention, I think would have made for more persuasive studies and would have given us more direction in terms of how we actually want to combine or compare these things. And so if I were doing this again, at least as a steering committee member, I would probably organizationally want somewhat more centralization and second, want to take more decisions up front in a more centralized way and then design the experiments following those things. And so I think that ultimately this is a huge trade-off between the number of voices and the benefits that come from that and what research design and questions we want to ask. And so I don't know what the correct way to balance those things are. My reflections and people on the teams may have the opposite inclination that they want more decentralization than there was. And so I think that that's a central debate for this type of large study with many researchers going forward. For instance, I think that more care of selecting sites would have been very helpful for the interpretation of the findings and also just the ability to harmonize treatments and measurements. So at the most concrete level, I think that potentially we would have wanted all of the studies to be about forests. And they could be very different forests in different parts of the world with different governance structures, but we sort of uh, have this more 
concrete commonality of studying one type of resource, I think would have been nice. I think it may have been the case that instead of just having people crowdsource for us, they want to work in, then you can think about, I really care about this relationship between the authority of local communities and the authority of the state with regard to the governance of these forests and then selected sites on the basis of that relationship. Or it may be other things that you were interested in like exploiting or at least understanding better descriptively. And so I think like that type of decision up front would have improved the study in some ways, but certainly there would be costs to doing it in that way. I think that my feelings about it after the fact are in line with Tara's, which are there needs to just be a massively larger amount of work done up front rather than piecing out a lot of this work over time. And so in particular, Rather than waiting for the studies to kind of commence and follow the the usual uh, protocol of many field experimentalists, which is to pre-register their study the night before data collection goes into the field, doing a lot more work up front to specify a theory and to decide on an overall research design that is the right one for testing that theory. All of that work to me should happen before money is solicited and before sites are selected. And there are lots of different kinds of decisions that we could make because we decided to tie our hands to this design where we did six studies that were all kind of similar in their design. And we could have made many different decisions about having multiple arms be tested in a single site, testing different implications of the theory in in different sites. And I, I think just most broadly to set up this very expensive data collection effort to test a really rich set of implications of the theory in addition to providing value to policymakers. That requires a lot of work up front, and so I think the reason that that hasn't happened is it's hard to do that in advance. One really promising direction to take this is to not be fixated on having all of the studies take place at exactly the same time. And and so Alex Kako and Anna Vilka and co-authors are working on a rolling Medicata design where all of this work does take place up front in the context of a single study, and then the Medicata comes in in replicating that over time. And I think there are a lot of different variations of that that should be explored, where you're not just replicating it as the many lab study does in psych, but you're testing other implications, you're conducting generalizability tests where you assess whether your claims about within-study generalizability actually hold up. There are lots of different varieties of this that I think could provide a lot of value to policymakers and build up theory. There's been a large and growing conversation on ethics and ethical considerations with respect to field experimentation. Are there any unique considerations that are specific to Medicata's or other coordinated multi-site studies? I think one thing that's interesting is that the ethical considerations may be different in different contexts of the same intervention. And I think that that's probably the main piece that I have on this beyond the ethics of these field studies or experimentation more generally. It may be the case that being seen with the police and the policing one has a different social meaning in different places and presents different levels of risk either to the citizens or the police. It could be institutionally that police officers are more vulnerable to being fired in some cases than others, just given the structure of the civil service. In the natural resource context, like the degree to which understanding predation on these common pool resources places community members in danger 
or potential danger very substantially or the potential for generating conflict within the community very substantially. And so I think that it speaks more broadly to the uh, context as something that we need to understand better, the role of context in what we're observing in terms of outcomes, but I think also in terms of thinking through the ethics of these things, we need a much more site-specific discussion. I'm wondering if the Medicata model raises particular kinds of equity concerns that we need to grapple with, particularly insofar as it implies a kind of centralization of funding and research opportunities and a kind of gatekeeping by those who are running a given Medicata by the steering committee. Graham, you speak to this a bit in a recent paper with Gwyneth McClendon. How do you think about this? I mean, as compared to, say, you know, a model of research in which we just let 100 flowers bloom and we let everyone work on their own studies in kind of uncoordinated fashion and then try to aggregate after the fact. Might a coordinated model potentially work to the disadvantage of some kinds of scholars? My basic view on it is that this should be one component of a toolkit of different kinds of research designs that we undertake. This should not take over the more general uncoordinated research that goes on. This should be basically used in a relatively limited number of circumstances where we feel like theoretically or from a policy standpoint, we can justify the expenditure on this kind of research. But I I do think it raises equity concerns. I'm not sure on what side they land because I think that these projects have expanded the pie, not moved resources from one place to another, and that these studies probably wouldn't have taken place otherwise. And I think that there's a broader issue of a concentration of resources in, in social science field experiments that we need to address. When thinking about forming these studies, one of the top-of-mind concerns that we had in selecting them was ensuring that both junior and senior scholars and scholars that come from excluded groups could participate in these projects. And I'm not sure that those concerns are, are always considered in, in funding decisions. I see this as the primary trade-off with idea that this research would be more coherent if it were more centralized, is that the centralization would at least further exacerbate questions about equity. I agree with Graham in terms of the specific funding of these medicatas. It's not clear to me that that would have gone to social science research at all had it not been for the grant from DFID to EGAP in the sense of medicatas two, three, and four. One thing that our study in particular could have done better is have more of the local research teams represented as contributors to the products. And I think that that's something that we probably should have thought through and we should have acknowledged those contributions of the implementing partners and even like the monitors in the field in a broader way than was done. But I think that, as Graham said, this should not be the modal research design that's there for some set of studies. And I think that in terms of structuring this to best contribute to knowledge, like this equity concern needs to be paramount in terms of thinking about how we can make these studies better and at what cost. Tara, I know you started working on Medicatas as a graduate student. Graham, you were a postdoc. What advice do you have for other graduate students, other early career scholars who may be interested in getting involved in a future Medicata projects? What practical steps would you recommend they take? And importantly, what sort of professional considerations do you think that they should be thinking about? 
one of the reasons that I was able to become involved in this as a grad student was because the grants were open to teams of researchers and grad students and were fairly open relative to the general experimental space, where I sense that there's a lot of backroom communication between policymakers or funders and specific researchers they know or research grants that are only available to people within certain networks. So I think the benefit and the reason that I was able to become involved is because these grants were open to anyone that put together a proposal. And so I think that in some sense, given the lack of other opportunities for grad students to become involved in these like fairly costly research projects as more than an RA, this was a great benefit to me. On the other hand, four years is a long time when you're in grad school in particular, like you don't know where you're going to be professionally in four years. And so I think that it's not something where you can necessarily, at least without the permission of a bunch of other people, just go ahead and write working papers or try to send in results. You're committed to a common timeline. So you don't necessarily have very much to show during that time, which is a time when people evaluate the products that you've been able to produce. And on the other hand, you may not be in academia or research at the end of that you may make other decisions for what you want to be doing. And these projects, unlike something that's just on your own or potentially with your advisor, tie you to a large group of people for a very long time. And I think that that is a challenge. And so I would say that it's sort of a double-edged sword for grad students. On one hand, these are great because they are fairly inclusive with respect to who can actually participate in the way that you get to structure them, at least. On the other hand, they take a lot of time during a time in which you're not going to have things to show for them, which you might if you had invested your effort. Second to all of that, for me, it was just an extraordinary learning experience. And so I think a lot of people were worried for me that this was going to take away time from other research that I was planning. And I I would definitely do it again because I got to know a variety of scholars I wouldn't have gotten to know, a research area I didn't know as much about at the beginning, and had to confront a lot of these questions about how to design a, a Medicata study. But it obviously raises a huge opportunity cost of time. And I think that we felt really strongly on the steering committee that we needed to work as hard as we could to try to resolve some of those time inconsistency problems, especially for the the graduate students and junior scholars that were involved in our study. And that was one of the driving forces in really pushing this forward as quickly as we could and to get a, a book contract and to push this off of our desks into journal editors' boxes. And I think a lot of the junior scholars that were involved in the community policing Medicata were able to get a lot out of this. We worked with them to figure out how to get outputs that they could use in their promotion packets and in their job applications. And so you'll be seeing a lot of studies coming out from a number of those more junior teams in the next couple of years. Tara and Graham, I'm so glad that we were able to get both of you around the virtual table. This has been such a thought-provoking and fun conversation. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. That's our episode for today. Our content editor is Fabio Resmini, and our sound editor is Daniel Rinaldi. Our theme music is by the Great North Sound Society. Thanks to UBC's Department of Political Science for supporting this podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.